and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Amen. Welcome back to the Remnant Call, everybody. Glad to have you here with us tonight. I'm fired up again. As usual, we've got an exciting guest with us all the way from Skywatch TV tonight, and we're going to bring him on here in a few minutes, but I just wanted to make a few comments about last week's program with uh, Messianic Rabbi Zev Parat. Folks, I don't know about you, but I was excited to hear the testimonies that people are coming to the knowledge of Jesus, Yeshua, right now in the hour that we live in, in Israel. You know, in the middle mid-1800s, there was a lot of discussion into the Bible and trying to interpret prophecy. And people could only see a literal Israel as something that was spiritual. They, They never thought that it would actually happen. Some did, but many didn't. And now we see that God is not only fulfilled the nation of Israel, but the Jews, his people that he that he came for but yet at first rejected him now they are coming back again in these last days and god's bringing everybody home for this end time harvest and folks i'm just fired up and i want to say thank you to brother zev for coming on here and sharing the testimonies it is a scary thing to be on the front lines over there in israel there's persecution there are people that come against him they try to deprogram him they like you heard they even slap him and hit him and it's, it's a tough battle but god is standing with them and people are are giving their lives over to the Lord, and I just say praise God for that, and I'm very excited, and just want a, a few words of thanks to everybody who has um, been continuing to subscribe to the our YouTube channel, subscribe and liking us on Facebook, and just joining in to the Remnant Call so that we can get this work done. Jesus is coming soon. He's got a mission, and he needs people to be about their father's business. And folks, if you've been sitting in church, if you've been sitting at home and you've been waiting for somebody else to do the work, I've got news for you. It's not going to get done. God needs you to make a difference now. And I tell you what, if you feel uncomfortable because you're not doing something, then let me give you one word of advice. Do something. Get on your knees, ask God what he would have you to do, and then get out and take a risk and watch what happens. Well, folks, I'm just so thankful tonight because all the way from Skywatch TV here, we have Brother Derek P. Gilbert. He hosts the Skywatch TV. For those of you who have watched it, I think you can pick it up on satellite. You can pick it up on Roku, uh, on the internet. Um, I'll have uh, Derek speak a little more, all the locations that you can find it. But it is a Christian television program that airs on several national networks around around the world, actually, as you can watch this program. Um, 
A View from the Bunker. He co-hosts the program Sci Friday. It's a weekly television program that analyzes science news with his wife, author and analyst Sharon K. Gilbert. His professional radio career has spanned two decades, including stops in Philadelphia, St. Louis, and Little Rock. Derek launched uh, PID Radio with Sharon in early 2005, making it one of the first podcasts on the internet. Well, you can catch Derek all over the place. He has appeared on about every show around, and now he actually gets to appear on the Remnant Call, and we are so thankful to have him on here. And with that, I would like to bring in our guest, Brother Derek Gilbert. Derek, are you here with us? It's my honor to be here. Thank you, Frank. Well, Derek, we are so excited to have you on to the show and just very thankful to God that you would take your time out to come on here to the Remnant Call and um, and share some of this new, exciting information. Derek, you just wrote a book, The Great Inception, From Eden to Armageddon. Um, I, and from what I understand, Derek, this has been kind of a culmination and of some of your research that you've been doing through the years um, that, that's helped you to understand uh, maybe some of these deep insights that maybe many of us haven't looked at before uh, in this book, The Great Inception. Give us a little overview about this book, Derek. Well, basically, it, it builds on the work, and I have to give credit where it's due, uh, on the work of Dr. Michael S. Heiser, who has written a couple of books that I highly recommend, The Unseen Realm, and most recently, a book that is still the number one book in the Christian prophecy uh, section at Amazon.com. Um, mine got as high as number two. Couldn't knock his out of the, uh, the box there at number one, but that's, I think, deserved uh, on his part because his research, his work in researching and then sharing information about a concept called the Divine Council is fundamental to understanding my book. So if you haven't read The Unseen Realm, I highly recommend it. I, I kind of recapitulate in very brief form what uh, Mike goes into detail uh, on uh, as far as the Divine Council in his books, especially The Unseen Realm. But uh, you really ought to have The Unseen Realm in your reference library because it will change the way you read the Bible. In a nutshell, the gods, the old gods of the pagan world, are real. They are real. The apostles knew it. The prophets knew it. And it's in the Bible. It is, uh, th this is biblical information. They're called gods in the Bible. God calls them gods in the Bible. So this is not polytheism. This is just understanding the nature of the spirit realm, the way the apostles and prophets understood it. Um, it's most clearly explained in Psalm 82, which is where God is essentially passing judgment on some of these rebellious, small g gods. Now, just to be clear, these are created beings, not equated with Yahweh, the God of the Bible. This is not like the uh, the Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon where you've got a bunch of squabbling gods and sometimes the king of the gods, Zeus, Jupiter, uh, Baal, if you're a Canaanite, uh, can be fooled by some of these lesser gods. This is not that. G the divine council is a sort of supernatural task force that it pleased God to create to carry out his will, his divine order. And just like us humans, these uh, angels, if you want to think of them that way, but that's a very broad term that really doesn't get the sense of it, but these, these angels, these small g gods, decided to exercise their free will to rebel against his authority. And we see multiple cases in the Bible where this occurs. Uh, of course, the first case is in Eden, where the, uh, the being translated into English as serpent which, again, doesn't really capture the sense of it. We can go into that more when we start breaking down some of these uh, key uh, 
battles or conflicts in this long war. Uh, that was the first rebellion, of course. Then you've got uh, the one that's hinted at in Genesis chapter 6, which is the, um, the watchers, the, uh, the sons of God who saw that the daughters of men were fair and took wives, and from them came the giants, the Nephilim. Uh, that was a rebellion, and that is referred to by Peter and Jude in the New Testament. Um, then you've got another rebellion that's, that's hinted at in the book of Deuteronomy, where in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, we're told, or Moses actually tells the Israelites, as he's sort of recapping their history, uh, that God numbered the nations according to the number of the sons of God. Now, this is immediately after he describes the Tower of Babel incident. And that's, of course, where God separated the nations and confused languages. Um, and uh, Deuteronomy 32.8 tells us, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples, according to the number of the sons of God. That's significant, because the number of the sons of God matches the number of nations outlined in the table of nations, Genesis chapter 10, uh, mm -hmm. 70. And that number 70 pops up in the cosmologies of the uh, neighbors of the ancient Israelites again and again. You see it in Egypt. You see it among the, uh, the Amorites, the Canaanites. Um, and and it's, it's not a coincidence. What we get in the cosmologies of the other nations around ancient Israel the Amorites, the, the Egyptians, the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the, uh, the Hurrians, the Hittites, the Greeks, are twisted versions of what we get in the Bible. And I will say again, because it's worth emphasizing and repeating, the prophets and the apostles who wrote the books of the Bible understood that these entities were real. And some of the conflicts, some of the uh, episodes and stories that we read in the Bible make a lot more sense when you understand that these entities are real and that some of these conflicts are battles, if you will, between God and his loyal angels and these fallen angels, these small G gods. No, that you're exactly right. There is a, a giant struggle of, of good versus evil out there. And it's interesting that your book, The Great Inception, Satan Psyops from Eden to Armageddon, uh, Derek, I, I do believe, I'm a firm believer, and I think your book also um, – helps to bring this out obviously in a much deeper way but there is a a war spiritually on for the mind that will include um some tremendous amounts of deception uh, especially as we get here uh, to the last days that we're coming upon and Derek you you and I uh, we've grown up we we've, we've read the word of god and we've seen all the 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 supernatural things that happen and, and I'm a, but I'm afraid that today in the churches We've kind of almost looked at it like this could never happen to us. And, and when I read the Bible and, and even things that you've brought out here and in, in what you're going to share with us tonight, that what's coming is so dangerous that this information mm. should drive us to our knees in preparation, knowing that the end of the time is near and that we cannot trust our own strength to deliver us in this hour. Right, absolutely. That's the official position, by the way, of uh, the largest Christian denominations on earth, amillennialism. You know, the world is just going to keep on going and going and going until someday in the far distant future, a future that we'll never see, uh, God will say, okay, time's up and now we'll bring, uh, you know, the new Jerusalem to earth in, in some form or another. Um, they, they just skip over all of the, the disturbing prophecies that we get from uh, the apocalyptic 
prophets in the Old Testament like Daniel and Ezekiel and uh, you know some Isaiah and Jeremiah, and uh, certainly the book of Revelation in the New Testament. You know, we don't want to go there either because that's hard to understand and it's scary and it uh, it kind of contradicts this idea that we would like to think that the world is going to get better and better until you know uh, time runs out. Um, but I think that that's what the enemy wants us to think. It's like that um, line that was used in the 1999 movie, The Usual Suspects, which is actually taken from a short story written by uh, the French author Baudelaire. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. Um, he does exist, and he's playing an active role, and his minions, because there's more than just the devil. Uh, there are a number, again, of these small G gods, at least 70, and untold, uncounted numbers of demons uh, that are trying to subvert God's plan. And if they know, I, I suspect they do, that ultimately they lose, their goal then is to simply destroy as many people, take as many humans with them when they go as they possibly can. Well, you know, Derek, that doesn't surprise me because, I mean, sometimes you wonder, well, how could they think that they could win or how could they think that? And I look at the story of Samson in the Bible, knowing that cutting his hair would lose his strength. And you wonder, how could he have told Delilah that information? <laughs> you know, and so if here's a yeah. man who was uh, filled with the spirit of the living God, um, who had strength untold, could could give up such a great secret and somehow, you know, entrust that to someone asking, you know, would share that information. Uh, what would make me think somebody that is purely devoted to the dark side uh, wouldn't think for a moment that they could maybe somehow change the end of time or, you know, maybe sure. get it in their favor or some diabolical thought in their mind that maybe they can do some type of damage to God somehow that will, you know, be yeah. everlasting. So pride. I, I do see that. Yeah. Well, Derek, okay, I, I want to get right in. You you kind of started to just you know, wet everybody's whistle a little bit as you went through um, talking about your book. And it seems to me that a lot of this from what you have shared and I've heard in the past and some um, so far, I've actually been privileged to hear about your research. And that's a lot of this towers around mountains, biblical mountains, and mm -hmm. actually some mountains people have never thought about. Uh, these seem to be kind of uh, stepping stones throughout this saga uh, uh, from the Old Testament all the way to the end of time. And I was just wondering, could you take us down this road and, and open our, sure. you know, us up to a little bit of this research uh, to kind of show us what's going on behind the scenes here? The, uh, and this is why the book is subtitled Satan's PSYOPs from Eden to Armageddon. Again, it's the attempt by the enemy to deceive us. It began in the garden, and they're going to keep lying to us and confusing us, throwing sand in our eyes to deceive right up until the very end. And you're right, it's a series of mountains. Mountains have always been considered holy by humans. Uh, sacred sites, maybe because uh, they're remote, they're pristine, unsullied by human hands. But, but I think it's more than that. I think that there was perhaps a memory that was passed down from generation to generation of a time when humanity actually walked on the holy mountain of God, which is something, a phrase that we see in the Old Testament. You can find it in a number of places if you look for it, the Psalms mainly. But um, the original holy mountain and this concept of the holy mountain really began on Eden. I say on Eden because while Eden was a garden, Ezekiel 28 also tells us that it was a mountain, a garden on a mountain. Ezekiel 28, I sit in the seat of the gods as, as the prophet is 
speaking out against the Prince of Tyre, but most scholars will look at this and say, well, yeah, okay, he was prophesying against the Prince of Tyre, the King of Tyre, who was a Baal worshiper, uh, or Baal for scholars who are listening. Yes, I do know how it's pronounced. Uh, the, uh, yeah, somebody complained on one of my YouTube videos about yeah. that. So, yeah, I know, but as everybody hears it said Baal, so I'm trying not to confuse people. Anyway, um, they, the, the uh, Ezekiel, in, in writing as he did, was using the example of the, the, the rebel in Eden to describe the, the Prince of Tyre. So we can get some clues about what that divine rebel in Eden was like. Uh, and Ezekiel says, you were in Eden, the garden of God, skipping down. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. Okay, Eden, described twice in Ezekiel 28 as the holy mountain of God. That's where Adam and Eve were located. They were part of this divine council, this gathering of supernatural beings, even though they were natural, they were walking with, talking with, interacting with these supernatural beings, like the rebel, the Nakash in Genesis 3. Nakash, a word translated as uh, serpent, but it also uh, has other connotations that, uh, as an, as a, uh, an adjective, means uh, like uh, brazen, like polished brass, glowing, uh, luminous. Um, and in a number of places in the Old Testament, that word nakash is used interchangeably with seraph, which is the root word of seraphim. So it's not likely that Adam and Eve were actually talking to a snake. They were talking to a, a, a glowing, luminous, supernatural being of um, possibly serpentine appearance, because where it's used in the book of Isaiah, for example, um, uh, one verse where they are described as uh, fiery flying serpents, uh, you get this idea that they're you know, angelic and serpentine at the same time. Anyway. Well, you know, it's interesting, one is, little, just a quick injection on that, and not, not that I want to take away, because what's interesting is when people read over that in Ezekiel 28, um, and as you were saying earlier, you know, most people believe that, yes, he was actually speaking to Satan um, and, and all that, but mm -hmm. there seems like a point of time uh, that he was walking, and Satan was walking for a period of time before he fell. If you read this closely... It yes. says, "Thou was in the garden of the Lord in, until the day that you know iniquity was found in him." And so there seems like a point of time where he was walking right, yeah, with the Lord according and, to this. And pride caught him uh, and tripped him up, as the old, the old uh, saying goes: "Pride goeth before the fall," you know, uh, or before a fall. Um, apparently, that was here where he decided and, and we compare this uh, these pass this passage to the uh, the passage in Isaiah 14 and we'll touch on that in a little bit um, mm -hmm. referring to the same incident but it's pretty clear that what happened here was the rebel in Eden decided he wanted to set up his own holy mountain his own mount of assembly or mount of the congregation those are uh, other english phrases that are used to render the same um, the same hebrew phrase har moed um, it was pretty clear that he wanted to establish his own uh, holy mountain as the as supreme, set his throne on another mountain and rule God's creation from there. Um, so that was the first mountain. And again, the uh, net result of the rebellion of the Nakash was that he was cast down to earth. Uh, Isaiah 14 des describes that, and there's some fascinating um, implications in that that we'll get to in a little bit. Um, and, of course, Adam and Eve were ejected from the garden and kicked off God's holy mountain. 
the point of all of the rest of history is God's plan of redemption, which, yes, uh, required the, uh, the, the sinless life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But our ultimate destiny is to be restored to the family. There is a lot of language in the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul, that talk about um, being co-heirs with Christ, about uh, sonship, um, and the, the restoration uh, to that, that holy family is our ultimate destiny on that holy mountain, which, of course, now we know from the Bible is Mount Zion, or the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So all of history now is a series of conflicts between God and these small-g, rebellious, uh, created, little-g gods, God wanting to bring us back to his holy mountain, restore us to our place in the family, like the, well, like the parable of the prodigal son in the New Testament. I mean, that's really a picture of what this is all about. Um, but the enemy wants to prevent that. Mm. And so I went through in the book and broke up the chapters according to these holy mountains, the uh, first in terms of history, of course, being uh, Eden, God's holy mountain. The second being the, um, and of course being late in the day, and I quit drinking coffee a while back so that I wouldn't stay awake all night. Um, <laughs> of course, is Mount Hermon. <laughs> Mount Hermon is uh, the mountain. It's uh, basically the north end of the Golan Heights today, which of course has been an area of contention ever since uh, Israel declared its independence in 1948. Uh, Israel took the Golan Heights in 1967 and still holds it today. Uh, Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet um, elevation. It is where the uh, watchers descended in uh, Genesis chapter 6 and began that rebellion where they uh, created the Nephilim, the giants, who uh, were a thorn in the side of Israel until really through the time of David. Um, we don't know much about this incident. It's mentioned in the Bible. Um, Mike Heiser's most recent book, Reversing Hermon, is all about the impact of that rebellion on New Testament theology. And he builds just an eye-opening, jaw-dropping case that that incident had a lot more impact on New Testament theology, Christianity, than we have ever suspected. Um, we learn more about what happened on Mount Hermon by reading um, other literature from the Second Temple period. That's the period... Um, from the uh, reconstruction of the temple by Zerubbabel until, well, the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 by the Romans. So we're talking about the Book of Enoch, um, Book of Jubilees, and other literature created during that period of time. Um, the Jews understood that this was a real event. The apostles understood that this was a real event. Again, it's mentioned by Peter and by Jude in the New Testament, the literal mating of Angels, sons of God, B'nai Elohim, and human women producing these giants, the Nephilim, who then created all kinds of problems for the earth, uh, prompted God to send the flood of Noah to wipe them out and um, basically push the reset button on humanity. Uh, but Hermon was more than just that. According to the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, a copy that was found near the ancient city of Babylon and dating back to the old Babylonian period. So we're talking the time of Abraham. Um, Mount Hermon, which is, you know, like 500 miles, 600 miles away from southeastern Iraq, which is where this tablet was found, was known in those days, in the days of Abraham, as the secret dwelling of the Anunnaki. 
Now, the Anunnaki were the Sumerian gods, and the Sumerians had kind of um, exited the scene about, well, 200 years before Abraham. So this is this uh, epic of Gilgamesh is remembering, it, remembering an older tradition. So we're getting back into the third millennium BC. Um, the Sumerian gods, according the, the Sumerians thought, lived on Mount Hermon. Now, why all the way over there instead of the mountains of, uh, say, Iran, which were much closer, the Zagros Mountains? Well, uh, it's because they were rem- remembering something that happened on this particular mountain. Um, the, the net effect of what happened at Hermon, of course, is that those watchers, the angels who kept not their first estate, uh, were, were condemned to Tartarus. That's what Peter describes. He said that uh, uh, 2 Peter 2.4, usually translated as... Uh, the angels who, who sinned were, were thrust down to hell, is how it's usually translated in English. But the Greek word tartarau literally means thrust down to Tartarus, which in Greek cosmology, it was as far below Hades, hell, as the earth is below heaven. So this is like a special level below hell, reserved for these angels who had committed the unpardonable sin of going after strange flesh. Um, and then, of course, Mount Hermon... Um, as the dwelling place of the Anunnaki, it was also considered by the Canaanites to be the, uh, the Mount of Assembly, there's that phrase again, of their chief god, El, who lived in Mount Hermon with his uh, consort, his vice-regent, Baal, the king of the gods, and the 70 sons of El. Now, why is that significant? Because the 70 B'nai Elohim are the ones placed over the nations after the Tower of Babel incident, and we'll get to Babel next. That was the next mountain on this list of holy mountains. Now, it's artificial. That's kind of the point. After Noah's flood, uh, the second generation after the flood, along comes a guy known to us through the Bible as Nimrod. I make the case in the book, The Great Inception, that Nimrod was actually the Sumerian king Enmerkar, who was attested in the Sumerian king list. And he's known, he's probably the second greatest hero of ancient Sumer after Gilgamesh. And he was two generations before Gilgamesh in the Sumerian king list. Could have been Gilgamesh's grandfather, for all we know. But um, I make the case in the book that uh, Enmerkar is or was Nimrod, and that's based on the research of Egyptologist David Roll, who also makes an excellent case. And again, I summarize his research in the the book here, that the uh, Tower of Babel, contrary to what we've been taught, was not located at Babylon. And there are a couple of reasons for it. Mainly, number one, that uh, Babylon didn't exist as a city at the point in time the Tower of Babel would have been created. Second generation after the flood, um, I place somewhere in the early 4th millennium B.C., so somewhere around, say, 3900, 3800 B.C. That won't make a lot of Bible literalists, and for the most part, I am a literalist as far as the Bible goes. But in terms of the timeline in my book, just a fair warning, I use the chronology that is accepted by secular scholars just for convenience sake. I didn't want to get bogged down in arguing over dates um, because when you look at the, the important events in, in secular history and archaeology, they track with the narrative of the Bible. The timelines don't quite match up, but that's an argument for another book and, and another day. Um, the reason I put Nimrod in that period of history is because that was the beginning of what scholars call the Uruk expansion. Uruk was the 
center of Nimrod's kingdom. In the Bible, it's spelled E-R-E-C-H. Um, the, the city, historians spell it U-R-U-K. Today, we call that land by the same name. It's been so influential that 5,000 years later, we still call it the same name, Iraq. His kingdom spread out from that city, Uruk, and spread as far as southern Turkey, um, northern Syria, northwestern Iran. Basically, at its peak, this Uruk expansion covered more territory than Saddam Hussein controlled before we took him down in 2003. And there is a poem that scholars found in the 19th century, uh, a Sumerian poem that uh, was translated and has been called, it, it's called by scholars Enmerkar, Nimrod, and the Lord of Arata. Um, don't know where the kingdom of Arata is, somewhere in the vicinity. The point of the poem, though, is that this king Enmerkar, Nimrod, was putting the screws on this neighboring kingdom for building material. He had a couple of building projects that he wanted to um, undertake, and um, you know, in southeastern Iraq, they don't have much in the way of raw materials. They can't grow trees there. There's no natural stone there. So if you want to build stuff, you've got to import it from Iran or Afghanistan or Turkey, you know, down the river, from the Euphrates or the Tigris. So anyway, he was trying to intimidate this neighboring kingdom to send him the materials to build up the temple of Inanna it is in his home city of Uruk. Inanna is a goddess who has had a very long, successful career. We know her from high school mythology class as Venus or Aphrodite. The, Can- the Canaanites knew her as Astarte in the Bible. She's uh, Ashtaroth. Uh, she was a goddess of sex and war. And looking around at our world today, I think you can make a good case that uh, Inanna is the, or Ishtar is the uh, spirit of this age. Uh, yeah, um, absolutely anyway, agree with that. Wanted to build a temple to her at the, his home city of uh, Uruk, but he also wanted to build up a temple at a city called Eridu. And this temple at Eridu, which the Sumerians remembered as the oldest city, the very first one created when kingship was lowered from heaven. Um, Scholars date it back to about 5400 B.C. Uh, There are like 18 layers that they found when they started excavating this temple site back in the late 1940s. Uh, 18 levels. Uh, The god Enki was the god, uh, he he lived in a a subterranean water, subterranean um, uh, aquifer. Uh, freshwater, you know, key to life, especially in a desert land like Iraq. Um, his name is a compound word, N meaning Lord, and key meaning earth. So Lord of the earth. And this underground water source in, where he lived was called the Absu. Uh, he was believed to be the god of magic, the god of wisdom, uh, the god who sent forth these uh, beings called the Apkalu, who brought the gifts of civilization to humanity, everything from literature and music to writing, to uh, how to make beer. Everything good came from Enki. He was the only god in the Sumerian pantheon who had man's best interest at heart all the time. When their chief god, the evil, uh, malicious god Enlil, wanted to wipe out humanity by sending a flood, sounds familiar, um, because humanity was making too much noise and we were keeping him awake at night, uh, Enlil, ordered all of the gods to keep this a secret from humans, and he would commit genocide and wipe out the human race. Well, Enki disobeyed and let the secret out to the Sumerian equivalent of Noah. And Noah, uh, this uh, character who's called Utnapishtim, or Atrahasis, depending on which culture was telling the story, survived with his family and then 
humbly sacrificed to the gods. And so Enlil was appeased and humanity was allowed to rebuild and so forth. Uh, anyway, Enki, um, Lord of the Earth. Does that title sound familiar at all? Like yes. a New Testament title that Jesus might have applied? Yes, God of this world, Prince of this world. The Apsu is the word from which we get the word abyss. This king, Enmerkar, Nimrod, wanted to build up the temple to the god of the abyss. And according to this poem, he wanted to do it to make it into an abode for the gods. He was trying to create an artificial cosmic mountain, an artificial mount of assembly, so the gods would assemble in his kingdom at this city of Eridu. And he wanted to build it right above the abyss. Now, what was actually happening in the spirit realm, we can only speculate, but whatever it was, it was important enough that God personally, according to the book of Genesis, came down and interfered. And he didn't do that very often in the Bible. So that was the, uh, the artificial mountain. And interestingly, again, archaeology confirms the story because the the team that excavated at Eridu, 1948-1949, they found that the, uh, this, this ziggurat, which is the Mesopotamian steppe pyramid, was the oldest and the largest ever found in Mesopotamia. To this date, it is still the oldest and largest. But the final level, the newest, the one that would have been the granddaddy of them all, was never completed the scholars who wrote up the report, the head of the Ministry of Antiquities in Iraq in 1949, uh, writing the report said, mysteriously and suddenly, the site was abandoned before it was completed. And, and, and very quickly, the, uh, the site was covered over by drifting sand. Now, what could possibly have happened? Well, when you read the biblical account, it makes sense. God confused their language, and they left off building the city. So, no, I, I see that. Derek, one thing that's very interesting, as you're mentioning these things, just to bring up, is that I see, you know, folks, you might be wondering, well, why does he care about some of the other, this research from the ancient Sumerian or, or even the Greeks or, or their, their beliefs, because that's not from God. But what we see is these are corrupt um, versions of what happened in the biblical narrative. And in a, in a weird way, it gives actually more credit even to the Bible, because it's actually Absolutely. testifying to what the Word of God said. They just have a corrupt version of it, and you're talking about the, you know, the flood. Um, you know, some of the ancient stories of the flood have it, the Chinese version, down to actually eight people. Um, and and yeah. even in the uh, North, here in North America, um, the, in, the Native Americans have same stories. It's, it's all around the world. And, and in the Bible, we find the real picture, but we see that some of these things, they knew about it. And they're, you know, back, even back to the book of Enoch, and there's a lot of people I hear, well, I don't want to read Enoch because that's not in the Bible. And, well, I would just say this, folks. Nobody's trying to say this is your scripture that you build your faith upon. But if right. Jude can quote from the book of Enoch, and if you, want to, if you don't believe me, just go buy it. I think it's about on the second page. You'll find the direct quote from Jude uh, from the book of Enoch right in there. And mm -hmm. if he can quote from it, I think it's worth reading because it seems like nobody has problems reading from the Christian fiction section, which is all the top sellers pretty much in most of our Christian bookstores today. Yeah, and sadly, as I... Finally, you know, in my mid-30s, realized that uh, if Jesus attested to the 
the literal truth of the Old Testament that I had to take it seriously. And that's when I began to realize that a lot of what I thought I knew about the Bible I had gotten from movies. You know, yeah. It's embarrassing to admit, but it's true. Um, but you're right. And the, the other aspect of that, though, is that, Jew, that uh, Enoch and then some of these other stories, like the, the Canaanite uh, Baal cycle or the Gilgamesh epic, were familiar to the prophets and the apostles. That helped inform their worldview. So to understand their worldview and why they wrote what they wrote, it can help to read these, these accounts, these stales, the, the, the cosmology of the nations that Israel had contact with because it, it helps explain things. You know, for example, um, the thing that really got me started down this research is related to the next holy mountain. And, and you know, chapter 4 in the book it deals with Mount Sinai, which, of course, is God beginning his plan to bring humanity back to his holy mountain. He's called out his people, Abraham. Um, they uh, went down into Egypt and had spent a couple hundred years there under the uh, thumb of the Egyptians, we've been told. Uh, as Sharon and I were doing our weekly online Bible study, which we uh, record and, and we post every Sunday to uh, gilberthouse.org is the, uh, the website, if you don't mind my plugging it. Um, we were reading Exodus chapter 14, which was the, uh, uh, the Exodus account leading to the, uh, the Red Sea crossing, which is a story all of us have heard uh, in church since we were kids in Sunday school. I mean, it's a spectacular miracle, you know. Great special effects, Lord. Great. That, uh, <laughs> great way to dispose of the Egyptian army. But why did he do it that way? And especially when you start reading Exodus chapter 14 and you get to the, like the second or third sentence there. Let me uh, bring this up so I don't misquote it. Um, Exodus 1, verse 2. The Lord, you know, the Lord says to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back. Turn around. I'd never noticed that before. Why did he tell them to turn around? They were getting away. Why did he let harden and send the cavalry after them. The chariots were coming, and God says, turn around. Camp in front of Pi, and I'm not going to pronounce this right. I had somebody tell me this the other day. I think it's P-Hehroth. Pi-Hehroth. But anyway. Pi-Hehroth. Yeah, something, yeah. Oh, I'll, I'll go with that. Between uh, that's, my, the, that's my best guess, and I have no scholarly uh, information or pronunciation to back that. If, if we triangulate between our two, we'll probably get it somewhere in the middle, uh, is probably okay. right. Um, okay. But he, he, he tells them to camp in front of Baal Zephon and encamp facing it. Now, Baal Zephon, I'd never noticed that either. I knew enough history to know that Baal was a Canaanite god, chief of the Canaanite gods, the storm god. But what's he doing in Egypt? Well, that's when I started looking into history. And then I remembered, oh, yeah, there was a period in Egyptian history called the Second Intermediate Period, where northern Egypt, the delta, was under the control of Canaanites. Well, okay, they not only brought their culture and their architecture, they brought their gods with them. And guess what? Baal was the chief god. So, okay, Baal was in Egypt. All right, that makes sense. What's a Zephon? A little more research found out that Mount Zephon, which is another holy mountain that we had to deal with here, uh, Mount Zephon, everyone in the ancient world knew, was the location of Baal's palace. It's like 500 miles north of the Nile Delta. It's, on, it's in Turkey, just across the Syrian border, right on the Mediterranean coast. It's like 5,200 feet elevation. That was the location of Baal's palace. And for some reason, these Canaanites who worshipped Baal wound up in political control of northern Egypt just at the time Jacob 
the House of Israel arrives. And just a couple hundred years later, as Moses is leading them out, either the, these people who are called the Hyksos by scholars, which is Egyptian for uh, rulers of foreign lands, or the Egyptians who kicked the Hyksos out, because apparently the worship of Baal continued for several hundred years after these Canaanites got kicked out by the native Egyptians. Ramses the Great, played by Yul Brenner in the movie, you know, Ramses the Great was a Baal worshiper. So these Baal worshippers go chasing after Israel, has Israel turn around to march back toward the chariots, camp right in front of a place sacred to Baal on the shore of the Red Sea. Now, why have the confrontation there? In Canaanite cosmology, Baal had defeated the chaos god of the ocean called Yam. This is similar to the defeat that is described in uh, Isaiah, uh, where God uh, defeats Leviathan, crushes the head of Leviathan. Um, again, we're getting the same story, but we're getting the, um, the, the enemy's version of the same story, the propaganda, the psyop, which is, again, why the book is subtitled Satan's Psyops from Eden to Armageddon. So Baal was the patron god of sailors for, for more than a thousand years. The Canaanites were the ancestors of the Phoenicians, who set up a huge trading empire based on ocean shipping. The Phoenicians were the sailors par excellence of the ancient world. When Egypt needed a navy, when Persia needed a navy, they would just hire out the Phoenicians. You know, Tyre and Sidon, Carthage. Um, whenever the sailors went to sea, they prayed to Baal, the storm god, the one who mastered the sea. He will protect us. Well, guess what? God was making a point. Yahweh, watch this. God parts the waters of the Red Sea, tells the Israelites to start marching across the seabed. These Baal worshippers must have thought their god, Baal, was leading Israel into a trap hmm. until hmm. they got to the other side. Until they got to the other side. And then when they followed, hey, Baal's got this, no problem. He'll hold the waters back. Wall of water on one side, wall of water on the other, no problem. And then hmm, the water crashes in, the army of the Pharaoh destroyed. This was God not just delivering Israel from the hand of Pharaoh, like it says in the book of Exodus. This was God delivering Israel from the hand of Baal, which, not coincidentally, uh, Baal just happened to be the chief god of the people living in the land that God was leading Israel to, Canaan. This was not only a humiliation of the god Baal on what was supposed to be Baal's home turf. This was a message in the spirit realm my people are free, and we are coming for you. If something that embarrassing, emphasize, well, yeah. if something that embarrassing would have happened, um, you probably wouldn't want to record it as much in your history, because that was shameful right. to the ancient Egyptians. Now we have seen the evidence was uh, found uh, when Ron Wyatt found that uh, basically that. Uh, uh, agreement. Um, I remember on that stone agreement, uh, basically uh, attesting to the seven years of famine and everything, that ancient stone. Mm -hmm. uh, we see the evidence, but it would make a lot of sense why it would be an embarrassment to record what happened at the shame of their personal gods back then. Oh, sure. Absolutely. It's, it's not likely that they would. Um, so the, the, there's some really good evidence there, and, and scholars have done 
mainly Christian scholars, good work at identifying the uh, uh, the Pharaoh of, of the Exodus, but there's no consensus yet. I mean, there's still some who believe that it was Ramses the Great. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, there are some who uh, date it much earlier, uh, like David Roll. Um, I, I don't get into that in the book. My, my point is what's recorded in the Bible, this confrontation of the parting of the Red Sea, when God didn't need to do it that way, he specifically engineered this confrontation. Turn around, camp facing this place that's sacred to Baal until the chariots of the Baal-worshipping Hyksos or Egyptians, these Baal worshippers, catch up to you. Then when they're right there and can watch this, I, Yahweh, am going to part the waters, which is supposed to be his. This was a very specific confrontation engineered for a specific purpose. Yeah, Yes, to humiliate Baal. Also to send a message, I mean, pretty spectacular, because 40 years later when they finally made it into Jericho, Rahab the prostitute is saying, we heard about that and we're terrified. I mean, 40 years later, that story was still going around. Um, But then to reemphasize the point and to emphasize what this is all about, and I know I'm going slow enough that I'm not going to get to all of the mountains here within an hour, but um, this next event uh, on Mount Sinai itself gets overlooked. And it really is one of the key points, the key purposes uh, of the, the entire biblical narrative, God's entire plan for our salvation. Um, yes, he calls Moses up the mountain and gives him the law, you know, the Ten Commandments and, and the law. Um, and then he gives him the, uh, the plans for the tabernacle, which uh, incidentally is a picture of Eden. And whole books have been written on how the tabernacle is a picture of Eden. But in between those two events, God says, oh yeah, uh, you and Aaron and Aaron's two sons, the the priests, and the 70 elders of Israel come up the mountain. This is, again, something I had never paid attention to, and I don't recall it ever being uh, preached on in in church. This is, um, and I'm forgetting the exact uh, chapter in in, uh, Exodus here. Is it Exodus 19? Hold on here. Well, anyway. Uh, the 70 elders going up the mountain there? Uh, it's, uh, yeah. Or is it Exodus 21? I think it's Exodus uh, 20. Let's see here. Anyways, I'll, I'll find it here. Yeah, but the point is that he brought these elders of Israel, the 70 elders of Israel, plus Moses and Aaron and Aaron's yeah. sons Exodus up the four, mountain. Exodus 24. 24. Okay. Yes. I, was, I was off. On all, all of my far. guesses there. Um, uh, and Exodus 24, beginning at verse 9, then Moses and Arab and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. Now, we've always been taught that you couldn't see God in all his glory. When you know he passed by Moses, he had to hide him in the cleft of the rock until he passed by but on the mountain, on Sinai, God's holy mountain. Remember, Sinai described as the mountain of God when Moses first encountered the burning bush. Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, the 70 elders of Israel, saw the God of Israel, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They went up the mountain and had a meal with God. Why is this important? Because this was the first time since Eden, that humans had walked, talked, and saw God face to face. And this was a message to the spirit realm. 
my people are going to re- be restored to their former place in the divine council on my holy mountain. And the fact that he brought 70 up, which matches the number of B'nai Elohim, the 70 sons of God. Remember, God numbered the nations, divided the borders according to the number of the sons of God. In Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, there are 70 nations. Uh-huh. One for each of those 70 sons of God. 70 elders up the mountain on Sinai. Not a coincidence. No. One other, you know, one other non-coincidence going yeah. Okay. One interesting thing about that, just a quick note, is that my my when I see, hear about this, when I see this, and it it just speaks to me that if you want to be close to God, we got to come up. Okay. We keep trying to bring Him down to this earth to fit what we want, and but God mm-hmm. wants to bring us up, up into His presence, up into where you know what I mean. And it's like if you want to get close, God wants to bring you. Yes, He meets us where we are, but He brings us up with him to where he dwells to be with him we can't bring him down into you know what i mean and that seems like today what we're trying to do so hard is bring god to fit into our world and he's not from this world right yeah jesus is my boyfriend we're we're not showing the proper respect and reverence that the creator of the universe deserves that was the that was the point and that was a message on sinai now of course the israelites uh you know tended to forget about that uh, pretty quickly. They had seen the miracle. They saw the, the thunder and the, the, the smoke on, the, on Sinai. And before they had um, you know, gone 40 years, a full generation, uh, we, we read elsewhere in the Bible um, that they were, they were sacrificing to goat demons in the, in the desert before they even made it as far as Canaan. So uh, sh- very short memories, but uh, you know, we're the same way here in modern-day America, so we, we shouldn't feel too... Uh, self-satisfied or, or, or uh, you know, righteous when we look back at uh, the, the way the ancient uh, Hebrews behaved. Uh, mount Zaphon, of course, is another one of those holy mountains that uh, I referred to. That was the holy mountain of Baal. Zaphon just means north in the Hebrew language. I mean, get that. I mean, the Hebrews, the Israelites knew that Zaphon in the north of Syria, let's, it actually across the border in Turkey, was the location of Baal's palace. It was so significant in their culture that Zaphon actually became the the, the word for the compass point north in Hebrew. Um, but it's interesting that uh, that mountain is mentioned in um, Isaiah 14 as the, uh, the mountain, the mount of the congregation. Uh, the very famous passage that uh, in the King James translation uh, begins with this famous line, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? And, and by the way, um, in Hebrew, that's Helel ben Shakar. Helel meaning shining one. Um, again, a reference to glowing, luminous, ir- you know, radiant being, like the Nakash. Uh, Helel ben Shakar, son of the morning. Shakar just happens to be the name of a Canaanite god. Interesting. How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Ever wonder what sides of the north means? Uh, In the the NIV translation, which is not my favorite translation, but they at least get this part right. In Isaiah 14, the NIV translates, that last sentence, I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. 
The Net Bible also translates it correctly. I will rule on the Mount of Assembly on the remote slopes of Zaphon. Mount Zaphon was the holy mountain, or at least what the divine rebel in Eden wanted to be, the Mount of Assembly, the preeminent Mount of Assembly, his holy mountain from which he would rule the cosmos. Whose holy mountain? Baal. Baal. Who Jesus in the New Testament links to Satan, not once but twice. So we're we're seeing some pieces there. We actually know more about this rebel from Eden than I thought. The other interesting thing about this Mount Zaphon and this phrase, the sides of the north, or the the uttermost uh, uttermost north, which is uh, in Ezekiel 38, the Hebrew phrase, Yerikat Zaphon, only appears in the Bible like three times. And again, Isaiah 14 is one of them. Ezekiel 38 is the other. And if that's the place where the hordes of Gog and Magog originate, we're talking about a cosmic north, a spiritual north, instead of a geographic north. So maybe when we're looking at, say, Turkey or Russia as the point of origin or the home country of Gog of Magog, maybe we should be looking at a cosmic enemy instead. And that Gog of Magog is actually the entity who wanted to rule God's creation from Mount Zaphon. Is, um, is Mount Zaphon anywhere close to, and, and forgive my ignorance on this because I haven't looked this up, but is it anywhere close to Pergamos? Because, you know, you mentioned not. it's not. Okay, because I remember, you know, in, in no, Revelation actually, about the seed of Satan and the death of Antipas, and what is Antipas, and um, yes. in Revelation. And, of course, that is Pergamon, which is Satan's seat, which is the other place where, where Jesus uh, links Baal, because you know, Zeus, the Greek Zeus, is just Baal, the mm-hmm. Canaanite storm god, uh, to Satan's seat, that uh, altar of Zeus in uh, Pergamos, which is now in Berlin. Um, but, no, uh, the mountain today, Mount Zaphon, is, um, is called Jebel, uh, Jebel, Akra, uh, Jebel al-Akra, and it's uh, on the border between Turkey and Syria. It's very close to Antioch. Okay, so it's on the other side of Turkey then. Okay. Right, right. Um, The next holy mountain on this list would be uh, Mount Carmel. I almost overlooked this one, but my wife pointed it out. Of course, that's the confrontation between uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Um, In the book, and I know we're down to like the last five minutes here, so I'll summarize quickly. Uh, Again, Baal being the storm god, it's not a coincidence that um, the confrontation, the lead up to the confrontation was three and a half years of no rain. Okay, that's Yahweh saying, Baal, storm god, brings the life-giving rain for crops and vegetation and and livestock. You have no power in Israel. Of course, until Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. But there's also a good possibility that those prophets served the the city god of Tyre. Remember Ahab, who was king during Elijah's tenure, uh, was married to Jezebel, whose father was the king of Tyre. And the city god of Tyre at that time was a god called Melkart. Melkart. They just called him Baal because Baal just means Lord. But uh, Melkart was the Phoenician name of Hercules. So believe it or not, the prophets of Baal that died on Mount Carmel could have been servants of Hercules. Mm, that's very interesting. Well, you know, yeah. Derek, I appreciate I We are getting down. I'm going to ex- just take the program just a couple minutes over just because I, what I like to do is, Derek, is, is I mean, this should have been a four-hour program. Uh, we may have actually <laughs> dusted the top of all those mountains in four hours. Um, and 
and folks, if you want to actually find out what's really in the book, you're going to have to get the book because Derek is basically giving you the 10,000-foot overview, and he only got flown about halfway through it. Um, but Derek, this, this is culminating. It, it's coming to a point, and, and, and it's coming to an end because your book is really – it is a history, but it's about what it's all coming down to. And, and Derek, right. I wonder, could you kind of wrap that up and, and share with what's coming and, and how we as believers got to respond to that? Yeah. Uh, ultimately, it comes back to the, uh, the holy mountain of God, which is the seventh mountain in the book, and that is Mount Zion, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And I, in the book, I explain from scholars who have uh, done the, the study in the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, we've been taught that uh, Armageddon, which is the ultimate battle between good and evil, would be fought at the Valley of Megiddo, because Armageddon sounds like Har Megiddo, meaning Mountain of Megiddo. But the problem is the geography. There's no mountain at Megiddo. It's a plain. There's a valley there, but there's no mountain. But when you go back and look at the Greek, or rather Hebrew, and how it's transliterated into Greek, har moed, which is that phrase we keep hearing, mount of assembly. That's the Hebrew, har moed, mount of assembly. When it's transliterated into the Greek, they, take, uh, they, they insert a hard g sound, a gamma. So har moed becomes har megidon, no, the final battle is, the, is for the heart Moed. It is for God's Mount of Assembly, which is Mount Zion. That is where our ultimate destiny lies. That is where we, are. believers in Jesus Christ, will be reunited with his holy family, with the, uh, the divine council. We will be restored to our original place in the divine council. And I show you from the book of Hebrews where and how that takes place. The first two chapters of Hebrews, if you read them with the divine council mindset, with that divine counsel view in uh, worldview in, in mind, uh, those chapters jump out of the Bible at you. It is absolutely phenomenal. I, I go into a little bit of um, uh, the prophecy toward the end of the book. Um, I am not don't not claim to be an expert in Bible prophecy, but I think the um, the enemy is setting up uh, in a nutshell a deception, a uh, the most vicious and uh, insidious double cross in all of history to draw well-meaning Christians and Jews into welcoming the Antichrist with open arms. Uh, Muslims, frankly, I think the most likely scenario uh, is that they will be nothing more than cannon fodder for the enemy. Um, as far as the enemy is concerned, they're already lost. They've already sold out to the, uh, to the fallen. And so their most useful role at this point is to die to draw Christians and Jews into welcoming a, uh, a savior who emerges to suddenly save Israel from this uh, attack by Muslim uh, and neighboring Muslim nations. That's the most plausible scenario that I can concoct. Uh, and I think it's a devious deception that will draw many, uh, if we're still here, and again, I don't make any predictions as to the timeline of what is going to happen when. Uh, I just put that in there for your consideration, because ultimately that is what the enemy wants. The enemy wants control of God's holy mountain, which is why there is so much anger and violence around the Temple Mount to this day, because the enemy knows that's what God has declared to be his home. It is where he will rule someday, and the enemy wants to uh, deny him that, and failing that, to destroy as many of us as they can before their ultimate end. 
Wow, Derek, thank you for that. Folks, this is what Derek, this whole book is about um, from beginning to end besides history is that these things, it's, it's coming back around full circle again. These old ancient gods from back in the little G gods, be specific, um, the fallen yes. ones, the watchers as it's referred to, um, this as in the days of Noah, it is coming back again in this last days. And it, there's going to be a deception so great, and, and I know we've read it over and over again in the Word of God that if it was possible, even the very elect, and I, and I think sometimes when we read that scripture, Derek, we say, well, if it was possible, but it's not, and we kind of almost get blasé instead of understanding the yeah. stern warning from that verse, that it's right. so strong that only by God's grace and mercy will the very elect not be deceived. And right. nothing. Else. No, I agree. And and that's important. And it's coming back. It, there is a a psychological, a psyops, a warfare uh, on the believer. It is this old-fashioned struggle of good versus evil that started back in the beginning of time, and it is continuing on to the final culmination. And Derek, thank you for digging into this uh, to try to give us a little more understanding and actually show us that. You know, the Bible is actually a little more literal, I think, sometimes than what people believed. And, and oh, uh, I am I believing that more and more. Uh, I understand the spiritual, but it seems like every time we've got a spiritual understanding, uh, God also does something literal and just shocks us. Uh, you know, people, just like with the nation of Israel, um, nobody, 150 years ago, that was thought to be impossible. The Bible scholars yeah. couldn't see it. And now we see God is doing just exactly what he said in his word. Derek, thank you for coming on. I'd like to get you back because I feel like the divine counsel, we didn't get to talk about that. There's so much more to talk about in the future. Derek, if you would be willing, I'm going to send you an invite in a little while, maybe in a few months when you've got some time. Bring you back and I'd love to talk a little bit more about this uh, with our audience because I feel like um, there's just so much more to talk about. And just as we're right. closing, Derek. Yeah. How can people catch up on your teachings and things you've been sharing? Where can they go to to find that information out at? Well, I've got a couple places. Um, I've got a, uh, a website for the book called thegreatinception.com. And I've actually been putting up a series of videos, uh, short videos, five to ten minutes at length, no more than ten minutes, uh, so that people can sit and watch uh, without having to uh, lose a, a big chunk of their day. Um, it's a way to get a sample of the book and the material in it without having to spend on the book uh, that is thegreatinception.com, thegreatinception.com. Uh, my website is derekpgilbert.com, uh, D-E-R-E-K-P as in Paul, gilbert.com. Uh, and, of course, uh, I'm on Skywatch TV, so you'll you know, see that at uh, skywatchtv.com, um, the Skywatch TV YouTube channel, Roku channel, Apple TV channel, mobile app. Uh, <laughs> it's, I, you know, it... It's almost comical because 30 years ago, I was uh, in the middle of a, a radio career, secular radio, and was you know, wanting more than anything else to get to the big city. Uh, I did, jumped from a town in, in Illinois, Peoria, to Philadelphia in one move, which is the fourth largest radio market in the country. And you know, looking back, I just see now how, how silly and how empty that desire was. And now you know, that I wasn't really seeking it, now that... Uh, you know, God has opened these doors and, and we're like <laughs> getting emails 
on a daily basis from all over the world. It's it's really uh, <laughs> it's it's really quite funny. God has a real sense of humor. Amen. And and folks, th- thank you, Derek, for that because this has been a very enlightening uh, episode. Um, if anything, we should be stirred to read the Bible even more now than ever uh, and, and to get ready because Jesus is coming. And Derek, thank you for risking putting your, you know, this is, this work is front lines. And, and I'm sure, Derek, you have your um, share of fans and not the kind of fans you wanted, but uh, they have definitely become <laughs> fans. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard from them very often. Uh, <laughs> They show up when you when you know when when you just thought you had a break for a moment, you get another email or some wonderful comment about you out there on the internet. But that's what it's well, like that, to serve Jesus. Not 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 as much as you'd think, thankfully. But uh, maybe it's just I'm developing a thicker skin than I used to have. Yeah, Amen. Well, thanks and for coming on. And with that's us. not my own. Frank, it's Amen. my honor. Thank you. Well, that's been a blessing. And so, folks, thank you so much. Pick up Derek's uh, book, The Great Inception, DerekPGilbert.com. You can pick it up on Amazon. Uh, You can pick it up at his website. Uh, If you just go to Google and put in The Great Inception, it will be right there at the top. And read that book and find out there is so much more to know and understand than what we first thought. And so with that, I would like to say to everybody, keep strong, keep in the faith. Good night from Brother Frank and Brother Derek, and shalom. Shalom.